Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here in the beautiful autumnal climes of Western Japan with another edition of the Flashback series where we dip into the Corbett Report archives for podcasts, interviews, articles, videos that are still as relevant as ever. And today, boy, do I have a doozy for you. It was released in March of 2010. It is episode 123 of the Corbett Report podcast, Meet Smedley Butler. Uh, Brock West has done a slap-bang job, as usual, uh, putting visuals to this audio podcast. And I have a feeling you're going to get something out of it um, because I have had nothing but positive feedback about this podcast ever since it was first released, which is interesting in and of itself. The story of this podcast is instructive in some ways because it has occurred to me many times over the years of doing this work that you never, ever know. You can never predict what will catch on with the public and what will not. You just, you have no idea. You cannot predict it. Sometimes you have some sense, well, this is a very uh, trending topic. Everyone's th thinking and talking about this. This is a great, great quality podcast. Lots of information. People will like it. And, you know, sometimes you can be right about that, but sometimes you can be wrong. <laughs> and it can be very frustrating and disheartening when you pour your heart and soul into something. You do the research. You, have a, you know this is quality stuff and crickets. <laughs> <laughs> How Palantir conquered the world? Who cares about that? <laughs> That's not trending. So it can be very frustrating. But then on the flip side, there can be times when you put something out and you're not sure. I don't think I said that right. I don't, I don't know if this is going to resonate with the audience. I don't know if they're going to get it. And then for whatever reason, it takes off and people really appreciate it. And so I have had that kind of positive feedback about episode one, two, three, ever since it was first released. People really like this episode. In fact, to this day, uh, the Corbett Report member 2D Chess Dweller, who has his own substack at Yes, X, or No, um, has continues to uh, uh, spruik this uh, podcast, to use the Australian term. He he still appreciates it and still tries to get it out to other people. So thank you, 2D Chess Dweller, for doing that. I'm glad this podcast resonates. But my own personal experience with this was when I was creating it, it was one of those podcasts where I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I said this right. I don't know, I don't know if it's, if it's going to resonate with people. I don't know if they'll really get what I'm trying to say here. Well, evidently they did. So my worries and self-doubt about this episode were for naught. Um, but it is an interesting thing to ponder. Now, proviso and asterisk here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know how, apparently I couldn't even say U.S. Marine Corps. I kept saying corpse in this episode <laughs> and other, other brain dead moments like that. But <laughs> if you can get past that, I think there's some very valuable information in this episode. So I'm glad, as I say, that it got over that hurdle and people really did uh, take a liking to it. As I say, I think this is important not only for media creators like myself, but perhaps more importantly for everyone out there who is trying to get this information out to other people. I am telling you, you never can predict, at least not with certainty, what will resonate with someone and what will not. And some random comment that you make on some su subject that you don't even know that they're interested in might spark their curiosity. It might be the thing that sends them down the rabbit hole. So I would just uh, use that as a, a way of encouraging people to continue attempting 
although it might feel like banging your head against a brick wall at times, continue to get this information out to others. I know that there are people out there who can and will resonate with it, and sometimes it's, uh, it's not who you'd expect or from the information you'd expect. Having said all of that, this is from the 2010 archive, and uh, in case you did not know, the 2010 USB data archive is now available from newworldnextweek.com. Yes, I am releasing all of the corporate report data, every single podcast, video, interview, article uh, is being released on these USB thumb drives, and they are being made available for each year. The latest one to be released is 2010, so if you haven't purchased one yet, what are you doing? Please support the work and also get a copy of this. Of course, you can download it all 100% for free from my website, including episode 123, but if you want it all in one handy location and you want to support the work, I would appreciate that. And of course, you are encouraged, nay, exhorted to copy this, all this data, and get it out to as many people as you can in whatever way you can. So. Uh, thank you for your help in spreading this information. And as always, the final proviso with these flashbacks, this particular video was created in 2022, so the video will be on the 2022 USB data archive. The audio of the podcast is on the 2010 archive. All that being said, enjoy the podcast. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome to episode 123 of the Corbett Report. Meet Smedley Butler. When Major General Smedley Darlington Butler died on June 21st, 1940, he died as the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. Having received 16 medals, including five for heroism, Smedley Butler was one of only 19 people who have ever been twice awarded the Medal of Honor, and one of only two that have ever twice received the Medal of Honor for separate acts of outstanding heroism. But if ever we need to be reminded that the human spirit is dynamic and we cannot be simply reduced to a sum of our genetic and environmental parts, perhaps all we need to do is take a look at the life of Smedley Butler. Certainly, one would have had a hard time divining the future of the young Smedley Butler growing up in the Westchester, Pennsylvania area back in the 1890s, simply from looking at his roots and his upbringing. He enjoyed a relatively well-to-do lifestyle as a young man, being educated at the Haverford School, which was popular with the upper-class Philadelphia families of the time, and coming from good Quaker stock, it would certainly not be very apparent that this would be a young man destined for a reputation as a tenacious Marine, engaging in military actions all around the world and adopting such nicknames as the Fighting Quaker and Old Gimlet Eye. But nevertheless, there you go, Major General Smedley Butler. And certainly if we were simply to look at his biography and his career in the U.S. Marines, we would see an outstanding record of service that would seem to denote a gung-ho, gun-toting Marine Corps to the core. In fact, Butler's career in the U.S. Marine Corps reads almost like a history book in the history of U.S. military adventurism of the early 1900s, from participating in the Philippine-American War to his time deployed at Tianjin for the Boxer Rebellion, for which he eventually won the Brevet Medal, 
to his participation in the so-called Banana Wars for shoring up American interests, and especially those of the United Fruit Company in Central America, to his participation in Honduras in the early 1900s, to Nicaragua, Granada, Mexico, Haiti, and eventually his service during World War I. Nothing at all in his biography alone would really lead one to believe that he was such a maverick, and yet that's the reputation which he enjoys today. Why is that? Well, we begin to get an inkling that perhaps Smedley Butler was discontented with the role that he saw the Marine Corps playing around the world for American interests when we start to take a look at his increasing political activism at home in the 1930s. And we can trace this back at least to 1932 and an incident known as the Bonus March. In order to get a better understanding of this incident and the role that Smedley Butler played in it, let's take a listen to a short clip from a radio program entitled History Counts, in which host Ken McDermott Rowe interviews Hans Schmidt, the author of Maverick Marine, General Smedley Butler and the Contradictions of American Military History. And let's listen to a section of that interview where they talk about the Bonus March in 1932. Could you talk about the bonus march, what the veterans were seeking? Yeah, the, the uh, veterans, these are World War I veterans, and they had been um, legally entitled to a bonus uh, for their service overseas and, and uh, uh, during World War I. And this was not supposed to be, be paid to them, I forget, until 1945 or something like that. And now is in the early 1930s, and there many of them are destitute and unemployed. And they say, pay us the bonus now. And, and so we can survive, you know, our wives and families. And so a, a large group of them marched to Washington, D.C., and many of them had their, their families with them. And they set up an encampment on the Anacostia Flats uh, in, uh, just across from, from uh, the capital area and, and were essentially lobbying or pressuring to get their bonuses paid. But the Congress and the Hoover administration refused them and eventually send in uh, troops under General MacArthur to rout them. Butler was uh, Butler went and joined them and stayed and slept overnight with them in the tent and made many speeches encouraging them that they had as much right to lobby the U.S. government as, as the United States Steel Corporation did. Now, while such a dry academic description of the events are no doubt technically and historically accurate, they do fail to convey a sense of the emotion, the fiery temper that was involved in, in this incident and the egregious slight against the veterans and the, the real anger that the veterans had towards the government at that time. But luckily enough, this is the internet age and with a few clicks of the mouse, we can surf on over to YouTube and actually find the audio and video footage that has survived this 78 years of a portion of one of General Smedley Butler's speeches at the Bonus March. I know who's made this country worth living in. It's just you fellas. Look, makes me so damn mad a whole lot of people speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 18. No. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we've ever had. Pure Americanism. Perhaps that short snippet of audio from General Smedley Butler 
conveys his character and who he was better than any amount of talking could ever do. And one can hear his passion for this issue coming through on that. And it seems quite obvious from that clip that as equally as tenacious as he had been a fighter for the U.S. Marine Corps, he would be a fighter for those causes which he felt to be just. And evidently, on the domestic front, that meant social justice issues. And on the foreign policy front, evidently, that meant deploying troops in the interests of protecting America, not enriching America. But if there was a burgeoning political side to G Major General Smedley Butler that was developing in the early 1930s, there was an incident that occurred in 1934 that was to ever leave its imprint on American history and to no doubt change and shape Smedley Butler's understanding of the political world in which he was living. And this is sometimes referred to as the business plot, and it's something that, in fact, we have covered before on this program. We covered it way back in episode 16 of this podcast, The Bushes Are Nazis. And if you can take the rather atrocious audio quality of the early versions of this podcast, please go back and listen to that episode for more on the business plot. But right now, I'd like to revisit an doc audio documentary that we listened to a little bit of back in episode 16. And this comes from the BBC, the Blair Broadcasting Corporation, now the Brown Broadcasting Corporation. But in the light of the 9-11 whitewash on the conspiracy files and the 7-7 whitewash and the Osama bin Laden whitewash and the whitewash of Dr. David Kelly's death and all the various whitewashes and cover-ups that the BBC has participated in in recent memory. I vote that they hitherto be known as the British BS Corporation. But at any rate, the BBC aired a documentary, an audio documentary, exposing a little bit of truth about the business plot and naturally trying to fling as much excrement on that established historical fact as the BBC possibly could in order to try to cast doubt on it or make people think twice about talking about it. But undoubtedly, they do expose a little bit of the truth. So let's, let's take a listen to this, what ultimately amounts to a whitewash of the business plot, and take a look at a very important formative incident in the life of Major General Smedley Butler. Now, rest assured, I choose my words wisely here, and I'm not just throwing out the term whitewash or cover-up, because I think it's self-evident that when someone follows up a statement like this... If these long-forgotten accounts can be relied on, I seem to be looking at an attempt to set up a fascist government in the land of the free. A coup that could have toppled one of America's most revered presidents pave the way for a possible alliance with Italy and Germany, and thereby change the complexion of World War II. With a turd in the punch bowl like this. But just what was this plot? Who were the Wall Street interests? Or was this nothing more than a moment of paranoia from a national media not renowned for its self-restraint? before blithely admitting that the entire incident is documented historical fact like this. But I already have the official statement released by that committee when it reported back to Congress. Its members clearly had no doubt that a fascist coup was in the offing. 
then I think it's pretty obvious to anyone with any media savvy what they're attempting to construct here, and that is a whitewash. But at any rate, there are some interesting nuggets that do slip through the corporate control, or should I say the governmental control in this case. It's all propaganda coming from the same mouthpieces in the end, isn't it? So, as some of the listeners out there may already know, or as some of you may have been able to gather from those clips, the business plot involved a planned fascist military coup in the United States in the 1930s to overthrow President Franklin D. Roosevelt, which, by the way, is just more of the left-wing, right-wing of the New World Order bird of prey sort of infighting and did not represent the fact that Franklin Roosevelt was really a man of the people by any means. But at any rate, this fascist coup plot was being organized in the 1930s, and as you guessed it, the plotters turned to Major General Smedley Butler as one of the men they thought they could turn to to entrust with a key part in the plot, but Smedley Butler was not playing along. So in order to get some more details about Butler's role or lack thereof in this plot and some of the figures involved in this scheme, let's turn to that BBC documentary, keeping, of course, our filters on and our shields up for all of the propaganda that the BBC will be throwing at us. The most important testimony in these records is from a senior commander of the U.S. Marines, Major General Smedley Butler. I was in the Marine Corps 33 years and four months on the active list. Major General Butler came before the committee of his own free will. He had, he said, been contacted by a well-connected New York City broker called Gerald Maguire. Maguire met Butler a number of times and slowly revealed his audacious plan. He and his financial backers wanted Butler, a highly decorated war hero, hugely respected by rank-and-file soldiers, to rouse an army of World War I veterans, many of whom were angry that a bonus they'd been promised had yet to be paid. The idea was that the general would use these men to help seize the White House, just like Hitler and Mussolini had used their private armies to bully their way into power. At the time, Butler... A staunch defender of democracy went along with the plan, but he was secretly appalled. Inside the National Archives, I was joined by writer John Buchanan, who has made a study of right-wing America in the 1930s. These super-wealthy capitalists essentially wanted to pose such a threat to Roosevelt that he would basically step aside. If FDR would not cooperate and step aside, they would execute him, kill him. Smedley Butler's testimony shows the plot was at an advanced stage. McGuire said to me, I went abroad to study the part that the veterans play in the various setups of the governments that they have abroad, like France, and I found just exactly the organization we're going to have. It is an organization of 500,000 super soldiers here in America. Well, I said, I suppose you get these 500,000 men in America. What are you going to do with them? He said, did it ever occur to you that the president is overworked? We might have an assistant president. He went on to say that the position would be a secretary of general affairs, a sort of Super Secretary. He said, you know the American people will swallow that. 
We have got the newspapers. We will start a campaign that the president's health is failing. Everybody can tell that by looking at him. And the dumb American people will fall for it in a second. Now in his 90s, Jules Archer was a young man of 18 when General Smedley Butler gave his testimony. He remembers just how idolized the man still was by the tens of thousands of veterans who'd been under his command. He was a fantastic anti-war general. He was very popular with the uh, soldiers and sailors. He fought for them, and he fought for their rights. That was one of the reasons he was selected for the plot, because they knew he could raise a paramilitary army of veterans who would follow him because they, they believed in him. It was here at the Association of the Bar in central New York City, just a stone's throw from Wall Street, that the case against the plotters came to a head. The chief witness, Major General Smedley Butler, walked up these steps past the giant stone pillars that tower above me here and through the rather elegant doors. Even today, all the officers on either side of me, behind the large wooden doors, are packed with people who are, are going through today's important legal cases. But back on Tuesday, the 20th of November, 1934, this was perhaps the most serious case the country could possibly have faced. And the room where it all took place is up several flights of stairs in what's known as the supper room. One of the most important witnesses who came here was Paul Cumley French, a journalist Smedley Butler took into his confidence after the conspirators had tried to recruit him. French had also met chief plotter Gerald Maguire at his Wall Street offices, and he recounted their conversation to the committee. We need a fascist government in this country, he insisted, to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all that we have built in America. The only men who have the patriotism to do it are the soldiers, and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize a million men overnight. During the course of the conversation, he continually discussed the need of a man on a white horse, as he called it, a dictator who would come galloping in on his white horse. He said that was the only way, to save the capitalistic system. But it was Smedley Butler, war hero and soldier's friend, who exposed the plot. He continued his meetings with Maguire until he gathered enough information on the plotters to bring the evidence before the McCormack-Dixting Committee. But given that there were no recordings of these meetings or letters written by Maguire outlining his plans, how can we be sure that the general didn't exaggerate or even make up the whole story? Jules Archer, who went on to study the lives of Smedley Butler and Representative John McCormack, is convinced the plot was real. He remembers talking to McCormack about his time as chairman of the committee that investigated the case. McCormack was a veteran politician. He was an advisor to Roosevelt and other presidents. He had a heavy Irish accent, he told me. General Smedley Butler was one of the outstanding Americans in our history. I cannot emphasize too strongly the very important part he played in exposing the fascist plot in the early 1930s, backed by and planned by persons possessing tremendous wealth. 
There was no doubt about it that uh, McCormick was absolutely convinced that Butler was telling the truth. On the Nazi activities, attacks on the Nazi movement in the United States. He presents representatives. In this early radio archive, you can just make out the other co-chairman, Representative Samuel Dickstein, warning Americans to be aware of the threat from fascist forces from within. We and the central character of the plot, the plain-speaking Major General Smedley Butler, was caught on early newsreel from the time, explaining his part in exposing the plot. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on a Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institution. So Smedley Butler remained adamant that he was the target of a fascist plot, and there was never any doubt either in the mind of committee chairman John McCormack that the forces of fascism were gathering to storm the White House. But who was going to fund the coup? Even with the backing of 500,000 veterans, a plot of this sort against the most powerful government on earth needs money as well as muscle, and an awful lot of it too. Well, according to Smedley Butler, this was where the big business moguls and Wall Street brokers behind the coup came in. They, he was told by Maguire, would soon step out of the shadows in the form of a newly created lobby group. Soon after he made this promise to Butler, the American Liberty League was born. John Buchanan. McGuire said, well, you're going to see in the next few weeks in the press, this organization is going to be created that's going to front for the whole thing and we're going to stand up for the Constitution and we're going to stand up for our troops and so on. And lo and behold, about two weeks later, splashed all over the major newspapers of the time, especially in New York and Washington, the creation of the American Liberty League. So who, pray tell, was behind the American Liberty League? Well, only some of the biggest names from Wall Street and the world of commerce in 1930s America, including the DuPont family, who was one of the major funders of the ALL, but also the leaders of U.S. Steel, General Motors, General Foods, Standard Oil, Birdseye, Colgate, Heinz Foods, Chase National Bank, and Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, among many, many others. So what became of this plot and the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, which was looking into it? Well, as one might well imagine with a congressional inquiry into such a sensitive matter, it ended up going absolutely nowhere. And ultimately, the final report of the Congressional Committee read, quote, In the last few weeks of the committee's official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. No evidence was presented in this committee had none to show a connection between this effort and any fascist activity of any European country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. The committee received evidence from Major General Smedley D. Butler, twice decorated by the Congress of the United States. 
He testified before the committee as to conversations with one Gerald C. McGuire, in which the latter is alleged to have suggested the formation of a fascist army under the leadership of General Butler. McGuire denied these allegations under oath, but your committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler, with the exception of the direct statement suggesting the creation of the organization. This, however, was corroborated in the correspondence of McGuire with his principal, Robert Sterling Clark, of New York City, while McGuire was abroad studying the various forms of veterans' organizations of fascist character. End quote. So, long story short, the committee looked into it, found out it was absolutely true, brought absolutely none of the accused before the committee to answer for this activity, with the sole exception of the man that General Butler had direct contact with, Gerald C. McGuire, who denied all knowledge of the plot. Surprise, surprise. And there it pretty much ended. But although the plot had been exposed briefly and then covered up again and consigned to the dustbin of history, from whence it would not be resurrected for another several decades, General Butler, at any rate, had been personally affected by what he had personally experienced in this plot, and I think it was quite evident that he was quite shaken up by what he had just experienced, because the McCormick-Dickstein Committee issued its final report in early 1935, and later that year, General Butler was to pen the pamphlet for which he is perhaps best known today, War is a Racket. Now, I could outline the history of this small book and talk about its origin as a speech in the early 1930s that he fleshed out into a longer version after the whole business plot and then published, how it was condensed into a reader di Reader's Digest book supplement and talk about the way that the work was received by the public and talk about how radical it was for a major general, and especially such a highly decorated and highly recognizable major general as Smedley Butler was in his own time, to have such incredible radical thoughts about the nature of war and the role of American servicemen. But rather than speak about War is a Racket, why don't I let War is a Racket speak for itself? Now, obviously, we don't have recordings of Smedley Butler giving this particular speech, but we do have a reconstruction of it, and you can go and watch it for yourself, and it's a fairly palatable reading of this text, which is certainly strong enough to speak for itself. So let's take a listen to Smedley Butler, War is a Racket. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious, it is international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. There are only two things we should fight for. One is the defense of our homes and the other is the Bill of Rights. War for any other reason is simply a racket. It may seem odd for me, a military man, to adopt such a comparison. Truthfulness compels me to. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. I suspected I was just part of a racket at the time. Now I am sure of it. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti 
and Cuba, a decent place for the National City Bank boys. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1910. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. <laughs> Looking back on it, I feel I could have given Al Capone a few tips. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small, inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. In the World War, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the World War. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine gun bullets? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory if they are victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. It would have been far cheaper and safer for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For a very few, this racket, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits. But the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. Take the World War. It cost the United States taxpayer some $52 billion, and we haven't paid that debt yet. But ultimately, it's the soldier who pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad, or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. Napoleon once said, All men are enamored of decorations. They positively hunger for them. So, by developing the Napoleonic system, the metal business, the government learned it could get soldiers for less money. Because the boys liked to be decorated. Until the Civil War, there were no medals. Then the Congressional Medal of Honor was handed out. It made enlistments easier. In the World War, we used propaganda to make the boys accept conscription. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army. So vicious was this war propaganda that even God was brought into it. With few exceptions, our clergymen joined in the clamor to kill, kill, kill. To kill the Germans, God is on our side. It is his will that the Germans be killed. And in Germany, the good pastors called upon the Germans to kill the allies, to please the same God. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. This was the war to end all wars. This was the war to make the world safe for democracy. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to help make them pay for the war too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. All they had to do for this munificent sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenches, and kill, and kill, and kill. And be killed. 
The power of such a speech is still felt today, and the message still resonates, and in fact, it may as well have been written today if you just modernize the language. The sentiments are still very much around, and there are so many points to take away from that speech that I wouldn't know where to begin if I was going to start enumerating them. But perhaps the easiest and most straightforward way to see the effect that a speech like that has had echoing down through the decades, even to our present day, is to see the way it is taken up and then reflected by our present day men of peace. I have a few questions for my uh, colleagues. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? What if we wake up one day and realize that the terrorist threat is a predictable consequence of our meddling in the affairs of others and has nothing to do with us being free and prosperous? What if propping up repressive regimes in the Middle East endangers both the United States and Israel? What if occupying countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and bombing Pakistan is directly related to the hatred directed toward us? What if someday it dawns on us that losing over 5,000 American military personnel in the Middle East since 9-11 is not a fair trade-off for the loss of nearly 3,000 American citizens, no matter how many Iraqi, Pakistani, and Afghan people are killed or displaced? What if we finally decide that torture, even if called enhanced interrogation technique, is self-destructive and produces no useful information and that contracting it out to a third world nation is just as evil? What if it is finally realized that war and military spending is always destructive to the economy? What if all wartime spending is paid for through the deceitful and evil process of inflating and borrowing? What if we finally see that wartime conditions always undermine personal liberty? What if conservatives who preach small government wake up and realize that our interventionist foreign policy provides the greatest incentive to expand the government? What if conservatives understood once again that their only logical position is to reject military intervention and managing an empire throughout the world? What if the American people woke up and understood that the official reasons for going to war are almost always based on lies and promoted by war propaganda in order to serve special interests? What if we as a nation came to realize that the quest for empire eventually destroys all great nations? What if Obama has no intention of leaving Iraq? What if a military draft is being planned for for the wars that will spread if our foreign policy is not changed? What if the American people learn the truth? That our foreign policy has nothing to do with national security. That it never changes from one administration to the next. What if war in preparation for war is a racket serving the special interests? What if President Obama is completely wrong about Afghanistan and turns out worse than Iraq and Vietnam put together? What if Christianity actually teaches peace and not preventive wars of aggression? What if diplomacy is found to be superior to bombs and bribes in protecting America? What happens if my concerns are completely unfounded? Nothing. 
But what happens if my concerns are justified and ignored? Nothing good. But we've been taught to take such words as the insane mutterings of the radical right or the extreme left or whatever way they want to try to twist those words into one of their little categories to wrap it up in a pretty pink bow and then cast it off to the side. Whereas, of course, it does represent the majority opinion of the mass of the people. But the gangster elite for whom war is their plaything and a profit-making device for them can keep us locked in the matrix believing that we are in fact the minority by parading the talking heads of TV in front of us saying just how necessary these wars are. And perhaps the clearest example of that very procedure came just two years ago in April of 2008 when the New York Times had an expose on behind TV analysts' Pentagon's hidden hand, in which it turns out that, surprise, surprise, all the talking heads that Fox and CNN and all of the major news networks have on to advocate war just happen to, oh, by the way, be on the Pentagon payroll, secretly and not disclosed, uh, always being touted as retired generals or military analysts instead of Pentagon shills, which is exactly what they are. So when you see these talking heads on TV, of course, I'm not talking to the general listener out there who well knows this, but when you see these people, you are seeing paid shills of the gangsters who profit from the wars that they create. And guess who pays with their lives for these wars? Hint, it's not the people who are sending the young men and women of today off to die. For anyone who shares my fury at the controlled corporate media and the shills of the controlled corporate media for playing along with this gangsterism of war, I would highly recommend that you check out a new piece from Infowars.com, Alex Jones' behind-the-scenes of CNN's attack piece, where he shows the behind-the-scenes footage of a 20-minute interview that he recorded with CNN, but which they decided not to air for obvious reasons where he was absolutely on fire roasting CNN and the controlled corporate media shills for their part in the deaths of over a million Iraqis since they helped lie us into that war. It's an extremely powerful interview, so I would truly suggest that people go and take a look at that. But I think the last words of today's episode should probably go to General Butler himself, so I'm going to read something that can inspire us towards a better system. From chapter 4 of the long book version of War is a Racket, called How to Smash This Racket. Quote, Well, it's a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay, but there is a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parlays at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all the other things that provide profit in wartime, as well as the bankers and the speculators, be conscripted to get $30 a month, the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. 
let the workers in these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, yes, and all generals, and all admirals, and all officers, and all politicians, and all government office holders, everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Let all these kings and tycoons and masters of business and all those workers in industry and all our senators and governors and majors pay half of their monthly $30 wage to their families and pay war risk insurance and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over and you will find by that time... There will be no war. That will smash the war racket. That and nothing else. Maybe I am a little too optimistic. Capital still has some say, so capital won't permit the taking of the profit out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds that those they elect to office shall do their bidding and not that of the profiteers. Another step necessary in this fight to smash the war racket is the limited plebiscite to determine whether a war should be declared. A plebiscite not of all the voters, but merely of those who would be called upon to do the fighting and the dying. There wouldn't be very much sense in having a 76-year-old president of a munitions factory, or the flat-footed head of an international banking firm, or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant, all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the events of war, voting on whether the nation should go to war or not. They never would be called upon to shoulder arms, to sleep in a trench and to be shot. Only those who would be called upon to risk for their lives for their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether the nation should go to war. There is ample precedent for restricting the voting to those affected. Many of our states have restrictions on those permitted to vote. In most, it is necessary to be able to read and write before you may vote. In some, you must own property. It would be a simple matter each year for the men coming of military age to register in their communities as they did in the draft during the World War and be examined physically. Those who could pass and who would therefore be called upon to bear arms in the event of war would be eligible to vote in a limited plebiscite. They should be the ones to have the power to decide, and not a Congress, few of whose members are within the age limit and fewer still of whom are in physical condition to bear arms. Only those who must suffer should have the right to vote. A third step in this business of smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces for defense only. At each session of Congress, the question of further naval appropriations comes up. The swivel chair admirals of Washington, and there are always a lot of them, are very adroit lobbyists, and they are smart. They don't shout that we need a lot of battleships to war on this nation or that nation. Oh no. First of all, they let it be known that America is menaced by a great naval power. Almost any day, these admirals will tell you, the great fleet of this supposed enemy will strike suddenly and annihilate 125 million people, just like that. Then they begin to cry for a larger navy. For what? To fight the enemy? Oh my, no. Oh no. For defense purposes only. Then, incidentally, they announce maneuvers in the Pacific. For defense. Uh-huh. The Pacific is a great big ocean. We have a tremendous coastline on the Pacific. Will the maneuvers be off the coast? Two or three hundred miles? Oh no, the maneuvers will be two thousand, yes, perhaps even thirty-five hundred miles off the coast. The Japanese, a proud people, of course will be pleased beyond expression to see the United States fleet so close to Nippon's shores. 
even as pleased as would be the residents of California were they to dimly discern through the morning mist the Japanese fleet playing at war games off Los Angeles. The ships of our navy, it can be seen, should be specifically limited, by law, to within 200 miles of our coastline. Had that been the law in 1898, the Maine would never have gone to Havana Harbor. She never would have been blown up. There would have been no war with Spain with its intendant losses of life. 200 miles is ample, in the opinion of experts, for defense purposes. Our nation cannot start an offensive war if its ships can't go further than 200 miles from the coastline. Planes might be permitted to go as far as 500 miles from the coast for purposes of reconnaissance, and the army should never leave the territorial limits of our nation. To summarize, three steps must be taken to smash the war racket. 1. We must take the profit out of war. 2. We must permit the youth of the land who would bear arms to decide whether or not there should be war. 3. We must limit our military forces to home defense purposes. End quote. And perhaps in the end, both the tragedy and the hope is that essentially nothing has changed in the last 80 years. Years. 